0: Okay, thank you everybody. So this is our last um, papers session um, for a whole conference, actually. Um, how are you finding the orangery in the tea rooms, everybody? Is it up to your, your expectations and satisfaction? I'd hope so. It's a bit grubby. Which one are you in? <laughs> Oh well, uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't like to say. Oh, okay, fair enough, fair enough. The, f- the food is miles better than I expected. It. It's brilliant. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just wanted to show you my
1: biscotti. <laughs> the food that that making. A
0: bit dim. And I know, um, I know, some of the cakes. Because we, you know, sending those of you that ordered your tickets by a certain time, we did send you cakes. And I know some of them haven't quite survived until this weekend, but that's that's fine, totally understandable. But yeah, afternoon tea and cake session we thought would be, you know, well needed, a little bit of a a sugar hit for the afternoon to get us through the last session. We've got four papers um, in this session and I think we'll just go, just have them sort of back to back. Um, And Sarah, Kate, Mary, you are the first one up. Um, And this this whole session is around, it's really Women in Ambridge 3. It's a really big focus on the women in, in Ambridge again. So I'm just making you co-host Sarah-Cate, okay. and then over to you. Thank you.
2: Um, my paper isn't so much about women to be honest, but it's um, now that one. Can you see my presentation? No. Okay, let's try this. How's that? Cool, got it. Brilliant. Okay, so this has um, over, I can't see my presentation. Hang on a minute. Sometimes Zoom just hates me. There we go. Okay. Um, Okay, so um, I'm going um, to talk today about um, Friendships in the Archers, specifically about Aristotelian friendships that have um, arisen in Ambridge. So, um, let me think, just one moment because I've got two screens and my thing is appearing on the wrong screen, so I just need to change something.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Okay, sorry. I'm just. I'm having a Zoom issue. So, if I can move that to it, there. Uh... Don't worry. No, i many streams Right. Okay. Okay. So my name is um, Sarah Kate Mary, and I work at Coventry University. And my paper is about Aristotelian friendship in Ambridge and my slides will eventually appear. Okay, right, good. I can't see anyone apart from myself, so that's fine. Okay, right, Um, right. When I did my PhD, um, I looked at friendships that were created in online spaces um, about their um, it, friendships that started online and friendships that continued um, and evolved and flourished in online spaces. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting was that basically nothing's changed. Um, the way that we build and perceive our friendships is the same no matter how we enact them. So despite the um, different ways that we have um, developed in the past centuries, well, uh, millennia, to communicate and to make friends, um, to find friends, to lose friends, um, to cherish and mourn friends. They are essentially the same. The context, the emotions and the um, hierarchies of our friendships remain the same. And yet academics still find quite a lot to talk about. (laughs) I should say that I'm neither a philosopher nor a social psychologist, although my work does cross over into social psychology quite a lot. So this is basically the work of an interested amateur. It is traditional when talking about friendship um, to begin with an acknowledgement of the importance of Aristotle. Um, His work is still very relevant, even two and a half thousand years later. Another tradition of uh, studies in friendship is to um, note that it is an extremely difficult subject to analyse. It's difficult to define or measure in a consistent way. But despite this, there is a lot of literature out there and a lot of discussion about how we could or can measure friendship. So I don't have time today to go into the different um, qualities and properties of our adult friendship, which are used in the literature. But apart from emotion, which is the most obvious and also possibly the most subjective um, property. um, They also include trust, honesty, um, connection, equality and reciprocity. So, some of you um, may know this quote um, about friends, um, people coming into your life for a reason, for a season or for a lifetime. Um, it's, I haven't been able to find out who actually wrote the poem that this comes from, but it's um, a nice beginning to a discussion about friendship and um, also kind of um, is an example of the rule of three, which comes up a lot in discussion about Um, social connectedness. We talk at Academic Archers quite a lot about social capital and social networks for obvious reasons, not least of which is Nicola's um, work on the networks of Umbridge, and each of those have um, three commonly used types or measures. Within um, social network research, the ties that are made by individuals are generally categorized as being strong, weak, or absent. Um, A strong tie being formed between people who know each other well, um, perhaps have a a very long standing relationship. They confide in each other. um, Their relationship is reciprocal. And these usually either result from or in bonding social capital between homogenous individuals most frequently. Weak ties are built between people who um, don't have a strong affiliation, they may categorize each other as acquaintances. Um, They tend to appear to have little value, but they are very valuable in forming bridging social capital and um, providing connections and information between discrete groups. Absent ties, the third type, are um, defined by Mark Granovetter as um, those where there is no connection or no significant connection, um, such as with a nodding acquaintance, um, someone in the local shop, someone who lives nearby. And they've also been defined as invisible ties because I mean, they do exist, they're just not um, necessarily visible to an observer. And both of these um, theories, social capital, social network theory, owe a lot to Aristotle's ideas about friendships and how they can be categorised. The man himself. So, Aristotle um, is an example of another one of three, um, and I will. Um, I will mention again some of the things that could that connect between him and um, social capital theory, for example. Um, although Aristotle wasn't um, necessarily the first person to write about friendship, he well, he wasn't the first person to write about friendship, but he did um, write about the importance of it to our um, our life as a whole, how it is fundamental to our happiness and to our virtue. Um, to Aristotle, virtue was essentially moderation. Um, he believed that being virtuous, being the best person as possible, being as good as possible, came from deliberately um, choosing a balance between two extremes. And this is usually called um, a gold, the golden mean, um, and it is I don't really like using that because it's not exact, it's not a mean, it's sort a perfect average between the two extremes, but it is a balance. So um, it's uh, between the extreme extremes at either end of a, of a spectrum, and at one end is the vice of excess, and at the other is the vice of um, deficiency. So somewhere in the middle is where you find your balance. Um, so an example of this would be courage, um, which is... Um, a balance between the excess of being rash or reckless and the deficiency of being cowardly. Um, politeness to a stranger is a balance between the excess of being overfamiliar or ingratiating and the deficiency of being rude and grumpy. Um, the choice of these virtuous actions must be made knowingly, not just because it looks good or because um, it's a uh, something you've been told to do or because it's a habit, but because it's a conscious decision. So Aristotle, um, like Socrates and Plato before him, he believed that virtue was central to achieving a well-lived life, being virtuous, and he used the term eudaimonia. I apologise to anyone for my Greek pronunciation. Um, This is usually translated as happiness or blessedness or flourishing and also the term yuzen, which um, translates as living well. These are the goals, the ultimate goal, the highest end possible for a person and can be achieved through virtuous activity by doing something deliberately virtuous and one of the things that Aristotle says. um, contributes to eudaimonia is friendship. So here's another rule of three. Um, in the Nicomachean Ethics, which was written around 340 BCE, Aristotle characterised friendship into these three types, friendships of utility, friendships of pleasure and friendships of virtue. Friendships of utility are connections with people who are useful for their skills or their knowledge. They make our lives easier. These useful friends can include mechanics, shopkeepers, neighbours, work colleagues. They may be familiar faces, but you may not know their name. Um, They're people that we connect with, but maybe only superficially. Friendships of pleasure are those created with people with whom it is pleasant to spend time sharing hobbies or interests. They may be work colleagues, they may be fellow members of a club, a choir, um, a sexual partner someone you have a real life laugh with in the pub, um, people who bring us pleasure and joy by their company. And friendships of virtue are what Aristotle thinks of as perfect friendships. They are based on mutual appreciation, a common pursuit of the virtuous life. Virtuous friends like or love each other for the sake of the other person, not because of any benefit that they gain from that relationship. Virtuous friends reflect um, their own virtues. They see things that are similar to themselves in the other person and they understand um, the other person's true self. And through that understanding and spending time together, they become better human beings and achieve eudaimonia and using. They achieve blessedness and flourishing and a good life, and they achieve the goal of living well. So friends of utility and pleasure can be weak ties, they can um, be broken without too much pain on either side, Um, or virtuous friendships of those with whom there is a strong tie, a significant tie, and who we would normally um, describe as being our closest friends, our best friends and true friends. The qualities of friendships which I mentioned Um, a couple of slides ago, things like reciprocity, trust, honesty, they all relate strongly to Aristotle's idea of the perfect friendship, the virtuous friendship, but there are elements of um, utility and pleasure in all friendships. Okay, so looking at Ambridge, um, I uh, started writing this thinking that I would have a lovely, um, neat, Discussion about all of the different types of friendships and how they relate to how they mapped into Ambridge, and it would be all nice and neat, and it really wasn't. Um, so I'm just going to um, go through some examples. I haven't got time to talk about everyone in Ambridge, and I haven't, but I will talk about some individuals who are interesting. So useful friendships, friendships of utility. I would argue that Ambridge is absolutely full of friendships of utility. More or less everyone we hear um, is usually sociable, casually sociable with each other. They are, there are very few who don't um, at least exchange pleasantries when they meet. Kate and Emma, maybe. Um, more or less um, everyone that we hear in Ambridge has weak ties with everyone else, but we also have the silence. Probably the majority of weak ties, friendships of utility within Ambridge are between the silence or between silence and, for want be a better word, the audibles. For example, um, Susan is the postmistress, who I will talk about later because of her friendship with Clary. She's someone who, with her role in the village shop, she's likely to be a friend of utility of many people in the village, um, as would Kenton and Jolene as the landlords. Um, So in one of the Saturday get-togethers I talked about Ambridge friendships and we kind of um, and and sort of picked other people's brains to see if I'd forgotten anyone really obvious and I thought we hadn't forgotten anyone but actually we didn't mention Alan (laughs) and he's one of the individuals I want to talk about. He's friendly with many people in the village but I'm not sure that he actually has any real friends apart from Shula Um, And the cynic in me would like to say that that is because uh, he is a friend of utility to her because she needs him and his knowledge um, in order to get into the church. But it probably probably is more than that. Um, Another individual I want to talk about is Joy. I I have hope for Joy. At the moment, she is very much a friend of utility to most people. Um, I mean, if they don't run away when they see her coming, they tend to get her to babysit, as far as I can tell. Um, apart from Tony and she does have a rapport with Tony um, and I think they teased us with them becoming real friends of pleasure um, but which was because of their cars I think because but it does seem to have backtracked a little bit but that connection is still there um, and I I thought about um, Emma and Peggy, as well as a friendship of utility. When Emma worked for Peggy, it was very much a friendship of utility, although veering over the edge, possibly, of friends of pleasure, because I think they had like tea and biscuits together and gossiped together. Um, But after all the money hoo-ha and um, Peggy letting Emma go and everything, I'm not really sure where I'd put them now. And they had their conversation um, in the tea room a couple of weeks ago so I, I don't really know where they are now um but moving on to friends of pleasure um they should be all over the place really um half the people in the village are farmers or related to farmers so if nothing else they've got cows and sheep and silage um in common um, when i started this the first name i wrote down was david archer and <laughs> I don't know what to do about David honestly I don't really think he has any friends um, he's well okay so Brian probably and Neil possibly he's sort of related to Brian and I'm kind of a bit you know iffy about that but um I know Brian has kind of you know opened his soul to David a few times. I don't really remember David opening his soul assuming that he has anything to open about um, to Brian but um, you know, I don't know. He is just sort of a friend of utilities of everybody. It's a bit weird. Um, and there are a lot of—I mean, I talked about this in my conversation paper a couple of years ago. The number of people in Umbridge who have really the majority of their really strong relationships are with people who they're related to. Um, you know, that they—they're they, the people they mostly have conversations with—is—is is a bit weird. Um, anyway, uh, friendships of pleasure throw a stick in Ambridge and you would hit somebody who's who's in a friendship of pleasure. Chris and Harrison run together, Fallon and Emma work together, Alan and Shula pray together, Rex and Neil pick together, Jim and Robert Bird together, Tom and Roy Mope together, um, Helen and Kirsty regret men together and um, tell each other what to do. Um, And I think Cambridge is really good at showing um, friendships between people who are, as far as we know, of different genders. So Tony and Joy have a really promising (laughs) friendship. I have real hope for them um, to move up the the sort of hierarchy of friendship. And um, Roy and Kirsty are very solid. um, And so are Jasler and Fallon, although we haven't actually seen much of them together since the wedding. Lillian and Eddie. Um, And, of course, Tracy and Oliver. And I did desperately want Linda and Freddie to form some kind of, I don't know, follow Helen's example and become a private eye duo and solve all the mysteries in the village. there are also examples of three way uh, friendships within Ambridge uh, Ed and Fallon and Jazza, although that's again, that's kind of faded away a bit, but we do see echoes of it now and again. And Jim and Alistair and Jazza, of course, um, who uh, will, I'll talk about more in a bit, and they might as well have a spin off called the Odd um, which might also be true of Bert and Rex and Toby. I'm not actually sure where Toby's living now, so yeah. Um, so if we're really strict and ignore people who socialise with their relatives, um, there are a few people who stand out in Ambridge as not really having friends of pleasure. Um, Jennifer, who, I don't really remember her socialising with anyone apart from people she's related to, including Pat, who obviously she's related to by marriage. Um, and Adam, I know that he and Ian say they have friends outside of the village, but who really knows? I'm not at all sure about that. I don't know how I'm doing for time, Cora. sorry, but I'm going to keep, just keep going. So when we look at virtuous friendships in Ambridge, this is basically an excuse for me to talk about Jim and Jazza, to be honest. Um, but virtuous friendships are by definition, um, Aristotle says in any community, they are going to be a rare thing. Um, but despite my love of Jim and Jazza, the one definitely perfect friendship in Ambridge is Clary and Susan they um are perfect as far as um aristotelian examples of friendship are concerned i think i really loved them and it nearly broke my heart when they fell out after Ed and Emma split up they work together they socialize together they are similar enough to satisfy aristotle's need for friends to be um reflective of each other's virtues and for he also looked like wanted people to be um to have similar levels of moral development, which this is where Aristotle becomes horribly problematic because of, he doesn't believe that men and women can have similar levels of moral de- development. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, so they are closely followed in my heart and head by Jim and Jazza. The moral development thing might mean that they don't strictly meet Aristotle's um, criteria for being a truly virtuous friendship, truly perfect friends, but by the merit criteria, they definitely are. Um, While they may not be very similar, I don't think anyone can argue that they are anything but complementary. I mean, adding in Alistair just probably explodes the whole Aristotelian friendship thing, but um, I'm keeping them there anyway. As far as people who I don't know are quite there yet, Ben and Rory, I think, are um, very promising as far as virtuous friendships are concerned. They're also quite young, and Aristotle doesn't didn't believe that really um, virtuous friendships were possible in the young, probably because of the whole moral development thing. Um, but he also said that that you know most virtuous friendships would probably have started when people were young. So yeah, riddle me that. I don't know. Um, but they are, they are, Ben and Rory are a nice, um, solid pair. And I can see if they are both, if we continue to hear from them over the next few years that they will become that kind of really solid friendship. Um, somebody suggested Linda and Lillian. And I don't really, I have problems with Linda and Lillian because they, I don't know, their friendship is really odd and they're with the dog wars and the knitting wars and the pub sign wars and I don't really, I don't really know where they stand. They might just be one of those couples who just absolutely thrives on conflict. Um, and then two couples dyads, pairs of people who I feel are very much on the brink of becoming perfect friendships, both include Kirsty. So Kirsty and Roy and Kirsty and Helen. I'm not really sure where Helen and Kirsty are right now, but in terms of their friendship, um, and you know, obviously Kirsty and Natasha actually have just kind of formed a, what I would term to be a, a friendship of pleasure. Um, but before that, I think they were, they were pretty close, despite the fact that the, they didn't always meet absolutely, you know, reflect what the other was in terms of their virtues. Um, and Kirsty and Roy, I think, are quite solid. We don't really hear enough of them to be able to make a really good judgment on their level of uh, perfection in their friendships. So, oh, Cara, can you give me a sign? How horribly over am I? Um,
0: Quite very. Oh, God, sorry. OK, right. I'll skip. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Okay. No, it's lovely. No worries.
2: Um, Okay, so this slide I'm not going to really talk about, but um, we do see friendships evolve. So um, in the case of um, Jazza and Jim, I don't really remember how Jazza ended up moving in with Jim, apart from he lost his flat, but their friendship went very much from friendship of utility to to friendship of pleasure. And now, as I said, I think they are as close to a virtuous friendship as we we get. It's always possible that Bert and Rex and Toby will form some kind of um, perfect friendship as well. Um, uh, Okay, so um, I'm gonna talk about people who, uh, their friendships dissolve because people suddenly become silent. So Pat and Kathy, um, Jill and Carol, um, Ruth and Usha, Peggy and Christine, Helen and Ian. I know Ian isn't officially a silent, but he has been quiet for long enough. Uh, Okay, so this is the end. In conclusion, Aris, uh, Ambridge is absolutely swimming in friendships of uh, utility and friendships of pleasure. Um, so it basically is full of what Aristotle would consider to be weaker, um, imperfect friendships. And um, I think despite this, it's it shows that these weaker ties really tie the village together. Um, they combine the three types of friendship even though there are only a few examples of the virtuous friendships they really tie the village together into a solid foundation so that's it um thank you to the saturday group who helped me brainstorm for this and uh, i'm sorry i've gone on so
0: long and there are references thank you very much that was really great thank you so much (laughs) for that sarah kate really great it's quite easy to dismiss and i know you sort of Sort of glibly said this at conference before that you know there's there are no female friendships in Ambridge and even though you've just rattled off a whole load of female friendships that were dissolved actually the nuance that you've put into the relationships that there are I find, I find that absolutely fascinating thank you very much <laughs> that's good do you have anything to add Nicholas seeing as more <laughs> <to> reference <laughs> I'm
2: sorry sorry about the oh my god really I'm so sorry
0: Really doing, you just great. cut me off. <laughs> no, no, but like, like I said, the end of my so I could it, Um. What I wanted to ask about was um. I tell you what I think. Uh-huh. Um. I think a helpful analysis of friendship was sort of in the work of Eric from and being and doing, right? And I think you have being friends and doing friends. So there's like sort of bumper sticker sort of thing, which is like. Good friends know all your best stories. Best friends were there when they happened. And I've thought about this I've thought about this quite a lot because you know we have and again Cora is um, wrapping packets of seeds but we are we are we are doing friends as in we do this together. so we don't have to just sit across from each other and be like how's life, how's this, how's that? But like last night when it all went a bit wrong, we're able to kind of dig really deep and in some ways i think it depends on where you are in your life like career friends sometimes you really need those relationships and i think it depends like what the like what's the you know the sort of friend of your heart thing as in like we are we are you know like my absolute besties are from when i was very young but I think as as you get older and you're more competent and you do more sort of skilly skills things, friends of doing, I think, become more important in kind of midlife. And then I guess some of them will fall away and all the rest of it. So yeah, I think, yes, precarity is not great for friendship. I it's a, know it's, it's
2: a... absolutely fascinating. But one of the things that social media has done is brought back, well, not brought back, but actually created the opportunity to have i always call it like a, a caterpillar of friendship behind you like a load of friends who you yeah. would have let go of before um but because we have facebook and linkedin you don't you still keep them they they find you someone found me from primary school god knows how but you know it's just for <laughs> people but you don't let people go in the same way that you used to it used to be you can but you equally you can make the conscious decision not to
0: but and that's that, your that's exactly your point about weak ties right so your social media yes. network your linkedin are your weak professional ties. Yeah. Wow, that is effective. At the point at which you put your nose above the burrow and go, I want a new job. It your is. Facebook and your weak ties. I think the reason that people get pissed off with Facebook is because people confuse it with like, you know, here are my intimate secrets of my heart, whereas it is a place for your social loose tie, your weak ties. Sorry, my sisters. My very last is my sisters.
2: My sister's way of defining um, what a really good friend is, what I would, I don't know whether I'd call it a virtuous friendship, is if I ring you at three o'clock in the morning and say, I need you to help me bury a body, will you come?
0: That would that be, be my sister in my case. Yeah. Well, we had to do that. Because have under- done it a few <laughs> times. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I really good. Really good. Um, William, don't worry about David. Honestly, that man, reaps what he sews. It's his own look, like, whether he's... Friends with anybody else other than his mother, so don't worry. What I'm doing with this spoon is packing up the last of the seed bags that you would have got in your um, goodie bags, so just going through the last of those. Um, Yes, uh, Michelle, uh, Grey Gables is in full swing um, getting everything ready for us uh, later, Um, and so let's go on to, oh, Everybody get ready at your keyboards. This next one is about Sheila. (laughs) I think the chat is going to go wild. (laughs) Meg Burton, over to you. Thank you.
1: Get rid of it. That's it. Um, See if I can organize this properly. Ah. Yeah, there we are, there we are, thank you. And good afternoon, everybody. Well, as Kara has just intimated, Shula isn't the most popular person in Ambridge, but I do have some sympathy with her. And I wanted to tell you a little about the training she has begun, what that experience would be like, and what she and we might expect at the end of it. I'm a Methodist minister, and like Shula, trained on a non-residential course, albeit back in the 90s. I served for five years in a rural uh, circuit, and I was a healthcare chaplain for 20 years in various settings. I'm now responsible for supporting all the free church healthcare chaplains in England and Wales, and I've recently set down as editor-in-chief of the journal Health and Social, chaplain, uh, Health and Social Care Chaplaincy. I cringe at some of the things that Shula has said or done, or some of the things she has not said and didn't do. I thought I would start by taking a brief look at Shula's life, because her journey towards ordination began with her birth, possibly even before, at some of the events and people that have contributed to her being the person she is today, starting with the clergy, who she has known. This slide shows all the vicars who have been responsible for Ambridge. There is one exception. Carol Deeds was a deacon who was filling in between appointments. This was before women were allowed to be ordained priests. And in Robin Stokes, half vet and half vicar, the villagers have their first experience of a priest who was self-supporting. It also shows the number of churches for whom the vicar is responsible, has increased from just the one in 1951 to four in 1995. Janet Fisher was already the rector of Darrington when it was put forward that she take on Ambridge, Pennyhassett, and Edgeley as well, causing a few hackles to, re- to be raised. Allen still has these four parishes, but could also be called upon to help out at Netherbourne, Loxley Barrett, and Lakey Green. That is a lot. In the next few slides are some of the notable events in Shula's life. I won't read them out, as it will take too long, and you will have to forgive me if I have forgotten something that you remember. A couple of things to note, though. When she wrote her story, she didn't begin until December 1976, when she began to work at Rodway and Watsons. But we know she was the firstborn child of Phil and Jill, with a twin brother, Kenton, a younger brother, David, and a younger sister, Elizabeth. I've read that she was considered a wild child and had a troubled adolescence. She was certainly headstrong, a characteristic that we still see today, but I don't think that what she did and experienced was particularly unusual for the 1970s. The 90s must have been awful for Shuler, coping with infertility, Elizabeth's abortion, and Mark's death. How wonderful it was that the second round of IVF worked and that she carried Daniel to term. But how hard to be joyous at his birth and when he was very young, whilst grieving for Mark. I found these words in Shula's story. Shula has astonished everyone in Ambridge with her courage. In the painful process of trying to rebuild her life for her own sake and that of her child, her lifelong Christian beliefs and the support of her family and the Ambridge community have given her strength. Shula is someone who didn't have a conversion experience, whereby she could say that she became a Christian on such and such a date, but was someone who was nurtured in the church from birth, and God has always been part of her life. The last 20 or so years have seen major changes in both Shuler's life and in Ambridge as a whole. She was able to take full charge of the stables when Christine retired and when Jim broke his leg, she invited him to stay with her and Alistair while he recuperated. Alan and Usha married and Shula resigned as churchwarden. Then Jim decided to move permanently to Ambridge. Shula found it difficult at first, but during the time when he struggled with coming to terms with his childhood sexual abuse, she was a great help to him. Her marriage disintegrated, but as so often happens, once divorced, she and Alistair have built a new relationship and he has been very supportive of her exploration of her calling, as have quite a lot of people in the village. We have heard many times that she is a good person and should definitely train to be a vicar. Before Shula could begin training, she was examined at diocesan level to see whether she met the Church of England's criteria for acceptance. In other words, they were discerning whether they agreed with her that her call was to ordained ministry. My colleague Jonathan Hustler discussed this process at last year's conference so I am picking up where he left off. It is not an easy option, training on a non-residential course. As pre-COVID, you had to attend one evening a week during term time, possibly beginning at about 6 p.m. for a meal with the other audience, and then having a two-hour lecture before returning home again. Twice a term, there would be a residential weekend, but these are now being done via Zoom. Easter school is an exhausting but exhilarating experience that lasts a week. You share in worship from Maundy Thursday evening through Good Friday and Holy Saturday, culminating in a dawn service on Easter morning. There are, of course, lots of lectures and group work, and you really experience life as a community of like-minded in one way, but also very different people in another. Shula would also be required to go on placements to churches of different traditions from her own, including possibly in an urban context, and also to do one in a non-church context, for example, a hospital or a prison. And you have to continue to earn a living and carve out the time to study subjects that are new to you. So what will Shula get from her training? This is the hope, that she will be mission-focused. She will be helped to see mission in big terms, not limited to church growth alone. She will be aware of the five marks of mission and confident in leading in them. She will be trained to be a confident leader in social justice in the wider community, seeing mission as being about God's kingdom, not just about her church she will know how to adapt to different contexts. Shula will be taught to take theology seriously, whether through studying the Bible, planning worship, or engaging with her community. She will learn that theology comes from a context and speaks to a context. None of it is neutral. She will study black theology, liberation theologies, feminist theologies, and so on. And that will help her to see that what is often simply called theology also comes from a context and carries assumptions. This is often one of the most eye-opening and exciting aspects of doing theology. And Shula will get a bigger perspective on everything, including God and her own faith. She will be confident, but not defensive, about being Anglican. Shula will have have to get used to the idea that not everyone sees the Christian faith the way she does, and hopefully she will learn to see that as an opportunity to learn, not a reason to feel threatened. She has the opportunity to get used to working with difference in ways that are not defensive. That should make her equipped for leading Anglican churches, which often include lots of people who come from other churches or none. It should also make her think naturally of working with church leaders from other denominations. She will be trained for the Church of England, as it really is. Anglican students and staff come from a wide range of Anglican traditions, so training alongside them means that she will begin to encounter the breadth of the real Church of England, not just the bit of it that she is already familiar with that should make her well-equipped for real ministry in the C of E, where she will have to work with those who see things very differently from her. She will be widely deployable. Because she will be used to working alongside those who are different from her, or working in contexts which are not her own preference, Shula should be very deployable, able to operate confidently and not defensively in a range of church and community settings. And in a range of worship styles and traditions. She will be a theological resource, not a supplier of simplistic answers. In ministry it can be tempting to want to solve problems and answer questions too quickly. In her training, Shula will be taught not to be afraid of questions. She will discover that God is big enough to cope with them And that means she can help others to be confident in God too. She will learn how to hold a safe space where the deepest issues are okay to talk about. A place where people's deepest wounds are not dismissed or hidden, but can be named and healed. And finally, she will be the same, but different. Sometimes people imagine that training alongside those from other churches means that students emerge from training a bit mixed up. But the opposite should be the case. Shula will complete her training more confident in her own denominational identity and theological perspective. She will be herself in a more self-aware and reflective way. All of this is a very tall order for all ordinances. And while you just quickly look at this slide of the Five Marks of Mission, I shall get a quick drink. So all this, the everyday experiences Shula had as she was growing up and as an adult, her experience of God and of church and her ordination training alongside others who may be so different from her is called formation. I think it is the most important part of the training, as it is about your development as a human person and how you relate to God. Alongside academic studies and her experience of church and worship and spirituality, it is what will help Shula to become the person God wants her to be, so that she can, in obedience to her call, serve in the place to which she is sent. In training, Every part of you is challenged, your theology, your ecclesiology, even your faith. You doubt your ability to do the job because you become so much more aware of your failings and shortcomings. From my own experience, it feels as though the whole of you is taken apart and then put back together. You look the same on the outside, but you feel very different on the inside. Many people suffer from imposter syndrome. How can I be worthy to take on this role? As people are nearing their actual ordination up to six months before, they often find themselves in a liminal place. Everything has changed, including how they are viewed by other people. The advice that is generally given to people who say they have a calling to the ministry is, don't do it unless you really can't get out of it, unless you have such a burning desire that you feel you can't do anything else. And this was what Shula said it was like for her. Shula was less than six months into her training when she went to visit Philip in prison. In one sense, it was a very brave thing to do. In another, it was very foolish. In the previous slide, I outlined what ordinances can be expected to be capable of at the end of their training. And yet Shula put herself in that position, perhaps thinking that she was already capable to deal with such a situation. Or maybe she didn't think at all. Many an experienced clergy person would have doubts as to how they might cope in a situation that is outside their usual experience. Most of us would talk it over with someone who has more experience than us, perhaps even the prison chaplain, because they are specially trained. And Shula was right. Philip would have been visited by the prison chaplain. The Prisons Act of 1952 states that a new inmate, whether on remand or at the start of a sentence, must be visited by the chaplain within 48 hours. However, Current prison service instructions state that the visit must take place within 24 hours. What worries me the most is that Shula appears not to have talked to anyone with pastoral experience. There has been no mention of her talking to Alan or to her personal tutor on the course during a supervision session. She acted in her own strength, showing her headstrong side again. Supervision in training and afterwards when we are ministers is essential. It is where we have the chance to discuss what has been happening, how things are going, and especially what is causing us problems, situations where we feel we didn't handle something well. I would have loved to have reenacted with you Shula's supervision session after she visited Philip, but time doesn't allow. Instead, May I encourage you to read the blog that Jonathan Hustler has written entitled When I was in Prison, You Visited Me, an imagined session between Schuler and the Director of Pastoral Studies on her course. The link is on the slide. He has highlighted many important things that have to be considered and learned when training for the ministry. Confidentiality. The importance of preparation for a visit and supervision afterwards. Having an open mind and not assuming you know what someone wants to talk to you about. The importance of actively listening when you are in a pastoral situation. Boundaries, that it's okay to doubt your calling and that the church knows what it is looking for in its clergy. They are not looking for someone who is perfect, but for someone who can learn to understand and live with their vulnerabilities, because we minister from a place of vulnerability. Which takes me back to what I said earlier about being worthy. In the Methodist Ordination Service, and similarly in the Anglican one, There comes a point after the congregation has been reminded that the ordinance call has been tested and that they have been found to be of sound learning and faithful to their vocation, when the congregation are asked, do you believe and trust that they are, by God's grace, worthy to be ordained? And the people acclaim they are worthy. And even though it is nearly 25 years since I was ordained, I still find those words incredibly moving. I know I have made many mistakes over the years as I have ministered, but it's not what about what we do or don't do, but about who we are. So assuming Shula does successfully complete her training, where is she likely to serve? Well, because of her age, probably in her own parish. But I very much hope that she will not be based exclusively in Ambridge, but will work across the group benefits that is on, under Alan's care. On completion of her training, she will be ordained deacon and a year later, priested. She will be a curate and Alan will be her training incumbent. And although Anglican clergy normally retire by the age of 70 and move to a different form of licence, I expect that she will continue to serve as long as she is able and willing. And so I end where I began, by asking the question, Shula's calling? Whose idea is it anyway? It is a mixture of God, of Shula's life and who she is, of Alan, of the local people who recognize a call in Shula, the diocesan director of ordinands, sometimes called these days the director of vocations, the bishop's advisory panel, and the bishop. And her call will continue to be tested while she is in training. I'd like to leave you with this quote from Meister Eckhart the German theologian, philosopher, and mystic, who lived from circa 1260 to circa 1328, which for me, sums up what ministry is all about, the ministry to which Schuller feels called. The most important hour is always the present. The most significant person is precisely the one sitting across from you right now, the most necessary work is always love.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Meg. That was really lovely. And and yes, the chat was going wild um, <laughs> in the usual sort of binary way with Shula. But that was that was really interesting. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, absolutely fantastic. Shall we go straight on to our, our next one? So let's carry on through the, the, uh, <laughs> it's women we love to hate of average. Um, Ruth and Rosalind, over to you next.
3: Okay, I'm gonna share my screen. a kiss. Okay, can you see in here? Yes,
0: we can. That's all good. Can everybody else just make sure you're muted and we'll start.
3: Thanks Rosalind. Thank you. So I'm going to start off and hand over to Rosalind. Uh, this is about uh, Borchester FE and Adult Education College. It's featured in the arches over the decades. Our themes, two themes, if I can move on. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. There we go. Two main themes uh, one is education, and one is relationships. So education could be transmissive or transformative, and the learning theory literature is vast on this. So a transmissive method might be when we learn facts, formula, dates, verbs, we might chant them, we might have mnemonics. And this has been said to be behaviorist, and it's just merely conditioning. However, transmissionist modes are necessary for learning some things but could be said to be surface learning and necessarily conservative because we have to know how to use what we've learned. Uh, Vygotsky said parroting covers up a vacuum. So all those theorists like Dewey, Vygotsky and so on who say first we have to do something and then we can theorize. And for all higher order thinking Uh, such as those based on taxonomies, uh, like Bloom's, but there are many others. These involve complex judgmental skills, such as critical thinking and problem-solving, and uh, a pedagogy of uh, critical... uh, Sorry, I can't see this for some reason. I can't get rid of my... Well, never mind. um, You can read the slide. it's developmental. These are the skills that we need for uh, life skills, really, and working in, in, in complex modern work situations. And they are um, they are more to do with transmissive transmissive modes. Um, so read the slide. So now we turn to the college. The college is quite frequently mentioned, but there is little about it in the literature. The most extensive discussion we found to be in that inspired editorship of Headlam and Courage, or Courage and Headlam, in Custard, Calvets and Cakes, where it's mentioned several times. Phoebe got into Oxford via her A levels there. And Felicity MacDonald-Smith in that esteemed volume tells us the college doesn't appear on the Oxford University website under the UCAS list of registered schools and colleges, so we don't know about the college's success rate of getting students into Oxford. And Rosalind and I also wrote in that volume about Freddie and his maths retake. We know they hold events, because in 2016 Jenny Pat Shuler and Elizabeth attend a fashion show there, but the college is mentioned mainly as a vehicle for dramatic scenes. So Jamie wants to do his A levels there in 2014. Remember Jamie? There's a couple of episodes around his D in maths, and he's allowed to resit and passes, like Freddie a few years later. And before he and Kathy disappear into the realms of the silent characters, Cathy rings the college and they eventually allow him to do a resit in December. And the last we heard of him, I mean, maybe someone would tell us something more. He was doing a chainsaw course at the college and was training as a tree surgeon, but who knows what happened about that because he's disappeared. Freddie and Lily attend there in 2016 for their A-levels. Elizabeth fears Freddie might be led astray by the peer groups there, so more drama. Is much like Brian years before not wanting Alice to go there, more drama and much drama around that pair and more later. Johnny Phillips attended a day release course during the year 2014. So now Pat Archer attended a course there. From the first we met her, first time we met her, she was feisty. First appearing in the early 1970s. And in 1974, when she was 22, she proposed to Tony and they were married three months later. Incidentally, played by the same actor throughout, uh, Patricia Gallimore. They moved to Bridge Farm in 1978. And by the 1980s, she was attending D meetings, a young family of three notwithstanding. And when she enrolled in a woman's studies course at Borchester Tech, as it was then, Tony was outraged. Her contribution to the bookstall at the fate around this time was deemed to be too political. And we, we, we speculate what could she have given them? And the vicar had a few words with her and more from Rosalind shortly. Jennifer Aldrich uh, also attended Portister College. Um, she that th- th- this is slide is supposed to represent her her career in the arches, so home farm, and then where she is now in a small pokey house, her wonderful argo and her wonderful kitchen down to a single gas cooker, and then uh, her. she wrote this book in 1981 with with uh, um, John Tregoran, Ambridge, village through history, and there she is on her, oh, there, somebody, there, this is pictures representing her on her laptop, Doing the Ambridge website. So the book represents her local history work with John Trigoran and the website, uh, her website work.
4: So um, I'm going to hand you over now to Rosalind. Good afternoon, everybody. Can you hear me alright? Yeah. Uh, good. Uh, what I'm going to look at, so I've got the nice part. Um, a series of love affairs at Forchester College, which are going to take us over the eras of the 70s, the 80s and the 2010s. And they're all going to show the college, as Ruth has already indicated, being used as a site of drama in the archers. And the question that I'm going to ask is, were these affairs realistic for their era in the light of contemporary culture and contemporary events. First of all, I need to give you a trigger warning because the following slides are of characters as portrayed on the BBC website. Our first affair, we're going to be looking at Jennifer Aldridge and John Tregoran in 1979. Uh, Three years before Jennifer and Brian had married, but by November 1979, Jennifer was attending a six week evening class at Borchester Technical College with John Tregoran. The following April, 1980, Brian steps in to encourage Jenny to spend less time with John. Lots of drama, as a result of Borchester College. And at the same time, encouraged by Carol Tregoran, her husband, John, takes a job in America organizing a series of antique fairs. So yet more drama. So what was this course that they went on? It was historical surveying. And the point with this course is that it involved weekend field walking outside the classroom. And eventually John failed to turn up for the sessions. The equipment that you needed for this course is called a total station, which you see on the right hand side. It was invented in the 1970s And I use one myself then while doing my archaeology degree. As you can see from the image, it has two distinct parts. There is a machine mounted on a tripod and somebody holding a metal staff. In other words, it requires two people to operate and move it around the site. Therefore, how handy for Jennifer and Roger to work together. Our second scenario is more of a fling and involves Pat Archer and Roger Coombs in 1984. Pat and Tony had got married in 1974 and 10 years later, Pat was having a fling with Roger Coombs, who was the tutor for her Women's Studies course, which Ruth has already mentioned. And this course was entitled Women as Economic Units. At one point in the the course, Pat went off to a feminist conference in Wales, where Roger was the lecturer. And Tony was not at all happy at this and he snapped. So yet more drama as a result of Borchester College. Now at this stage, prompted by Ambridge's vicar, Richard Adamson, and you may remember he occurred on Meg's chart as the vicar of Ambridge in the 70s going into the 80s. So prompted by Richard, Pat drops out of her course before the end and she and Tony turn to organics and bridge farm. And just as a matter of interest, I'd like to tell you that Richard Adamson was a very liberal uh, clergyman because he had permitted Christine Johnson and George Barford, who was a divorcee, to marry at St. Stephen's despite the fact that the PCC had voted against it. I wonder if the inspiration for this affair was educating Rita. So the film had come out the previous year, 1983, and it starred Julie Waters and Michael Kane, seen here. Uh, Followed on from Willie Russell's Russell's very successful 1980 stage play. So, yes, a lot of you remember it. It's coming up in the chat. Um, Now, two particular scenes um, I feel might have inspired the archers. On the left, you see Rita cutting Frank's hair and in the... Fling in the archers, Pat cut her own hair and, surprise, surprise, she begins wearing eye makeup. And then on the right hand side, we've got Rita going to the pub and meeting her classmates. Switched in the archers is that Pat is spotted meeting Roger in some dark corner of the feathers in Borchester. Horror of horror, drama of dramas. We now move on to our final affair. And this is the one we all know about. Lily Pargetter and Russ Jones. As Ruth has already told you, Lily aged 18 was doing her A-levels at Borchester College Russ was the 40-something deputy principal and taught art. They conducted a secret affair and then Russ leaves his wife and his job, much drama. Lily and Russ moved to Manchester and obviously it's still ongoing. Now, the data on relationships in F colleges is not easy to find, but obviously such a relationship would be unprofessional in any setting. So instead, what we're going to look at is staff-student relationships in HE. And you will notice from this slide that three universities in the UK have followed a number of American institutions in introducing total bans on close personal and intimate relationships between staff and students. And the the latest, Oxford University down at the bottom, uh, was considering a ban as recently as December. And if you look at the um, bullet point above, um, UCL, which, of course, is our own institution, quite rightly says that this is to protect students from potential abuse of power and conflicts of interest. Therefore, my conclusion is that these affairs were very realistic for their various time periods. But we want to leave the matter in your hands and how we're going to end is to pose some final questions to you. So we need your help here.
3: So uh, it's back to me. is Ruth again. Um, so we're going to ask you these questions, but we're going to have to, because polls were too difficult, switch off this um, screen sharing and ask you to use the uh, thumbs up or the... Reactions that which we, Carol was telling you where they were earlier on when we first began, and then we'll have a look at the at the pictures and you could do thumbs up. So the three questions are: Has Pat remained an activist? in this in, is in, in relation to transformative and transmissive. Has she remained an activist? Has
4: Jenny remained interested in local history? And then my final question is should Russ have written that glowing character reference for Freddie? In other words, was there a conflict of interest because of his relationship with Freddie's sister? And Cara and Nick, we're going to need your help to give us an overview, perhaps, of the reactions. So
3: we're stopping sharing now, and we'd like you to, first of all, In the first question, uh, has Pat remained an activist?
4: So whatever you want to do to react to us. Quite a few people think she has.
3: Yes, quite a few people think she has. Not that many, though. I can see from scanning the Only a few people... Oh, no, some people are thumbs down. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. There's a lot in the chat as well, so I don't know if you've got it. Okay. okay. Oh, well, Tara, so what's the over- overview, Tara? Can you see quickly? Most people are saying no. Okay. The second question then, has Jenny remained interested in local history?
0: No. <laughs> no no one person says yes there's a bit no what about the website no. all right
4: okay fair enough <laughs> Rosalind, your question... final question should rust have written that glowing character reference for freddie no no,
3: no. <laughs> so we're very moral people but we don't believe in that the, the other transformative yeah. Education. we've even got a certainly not there not
4: just a no but a certainly not okay. absolutely not right that, that's good to know um so we'd like to thank you very much for your attention thank you thank you Thank you, ladies all right so to round us off lots
0: of rounds and floors there to round us off we've got one of our absolute favorites um apart from a glass of wine but Lou gillies and as it's is definitely past the yard arm, whoever was saying that in the chat. And bearing in mind, this is called Alice Through the Wine Glass, Nicola and I have cracked open the wine. We did take it as a suggestion. Was that your plan, Lou?
1: Um,
5: no, but I hope you don't think I'm going to sit here in judgment. <laughs> <laughs> we would hope not. One of, one of my daughters has uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> I came home to once. That's my husband. You can't oh. see that anymore, can you? No, he's, yeah, gone. he's gone now, but he looked very pleased with life. Oh, he, he was, because he knew that I'd react quite badly to it, I think. <laughs> I love the relationship you and your husband
0: have. Fantastic. Anyway, we'll shut up and over to you.
5: Right, I think this is really great that you put me um, right at the end, because I believe I've now got to half past six to fill, which is good. Um, so, it's, it's great to be back um, and I don't have to hurry up because we've got bags of time. I'm going to pose a question, is baby Carter going to end up taking the high road to Birmingham or will he stay in Ambridge? And hopefully by the end of it we'll have an answer. So Alice with wine glass, I've got a picture of Alice there, a very well-known picture, and the drink me bottle on my title slide. Some might think this is amusing, some might think it's in bad taste. It will become clear why this picture is pertinent as we go along. quick bit about my background why I chose to talk about this subject today. I've got a master's degree in prenatal genetics and fetal medicine from UCL from late 90s, so it's kind of a long time ago now. I worked in fetal medicine research back in the noughties, including collecting hair samples from pregnant women to test them for recreational drugs. And I'm now working as a clinician, uh, a genetic counsellor in the NHS. So I see families of children with a possible diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome in clinic as part of my workload prior to them being seen by a genetic consultant. So I'm going to give you a top a whistle-stop tour of pregnancy alcohol exposure, um, also on slides that's shortened to PAE. And some of the consequences of this, we're going to look at Alice's family and her path to alcoholism, and then put this into a wider context by looking at alcohol exposure during pregnancy. Finally, I'm going to present the postnatal consequences of prenatal alcohol exposure based upon theory and the experience of professionals who care for children who have been exposed. Um, And I have to say that people have been really kind and have responded to my emails and texts and phone calls over the last few weeks to give me some insight into their work. Then we'll see if baby couch is on the high road to Birmingham. But before that, let's put alcohol into context. Cara and Nick. So alcohol is a normal part of our society. We wet the baby's head, we celebrate birthdays, successes, marriages. We use alcohol for Dutch courage. I haven't had any this afternoon. We drink as part of the social scene with with food and clubbing. We might have one for the road just before we leave to go home. I don't know about you, but we have services such as drink doctors who provide rapid delivery of alcohol in boozebulances, complete with flashing lights. Alcohol is an essential shopping item during Welsh lockdown, and this has caused great consternation when one supermarket was selling vodka but refused to let women buy sanitary products. Social media has a plethora of alcohol-related memes and who hasn't laughed at hurrah for gin. So society being is given the impression that alcohol is indispensable, more so since COVID lockdowns. People are drinking more at home, often during the week, and the measures that are pulled are often much larger than those in a poor bill bar. And I want everyone to bear in mind the acceptance and indispensability as we move forward to see what's going on with Alice. So a talk of mine wouldn't be complete without a genogram, Many of you have seen a large version of this before. I'm gonna skip Chris's side of the family. All we need to know really is that he comes from a stable family background and we're gonna focus on Alice instead. So Alice was a marital rescue baby, an attempt to save Jenny and Brian's marriage. Even so, while Jenny was pushing out Alice, Brian was mooning over Mandy Beesborough at the races. Brian didn't hide his disappointment when Alice came into the world minus a desired penis. There's also a history of alcoholism within the family. Jack Archer up here, Alice's grandfather, has got quite a bad reputation. Um, He is never discussed fondly. Peggy's marriage to him was hard and something that she brought up quite recently with Chris. Alice will only have ever read stories about him because he died when he was quite young, he was in his late 40s, I think mid 40s perhaps, because of alcohol related complications. On the other hand, she's grown up with Auntie Lillian, who's got a little yellow circle there. I've lost my slide. Where's that gone? Cara, can you still hear me? Oh, there we go. Um, So where was I? Yes, so everybody loves Lillian. We were talking about in one of the Saturday morning group sessions not long ago. She's fun, she loves life. She's always got a G and T in her hand. But I'm gonna suggest that unlike Jack, Lillian is a functioning alcoholic. She doesn't exhibit any outward symptoms of addiction and doesn't have a set drinking pattern and probably doesn't see herself as having a problem with alcohol. Lou? Yeah? We can't see your slides. Oh, I'm having problems with Zoom. I'll end the slideshow. Um, I'll stop sharing and try and come back. Do you know what, Sarah? You're the only person I've got. Shall I come out and go in again?
0: Well, I'm not sure. Can you... We can see you. see you, darling, but we can't see the slideshow anymore. Did you stop sharing?
5: No, I didn't. Um, let's try again. i have actually completely lost. Zoom. Oh. Okay, so
0: your camera's gone off now, Lou. Um, sometimes, though, rather than share the whole, like, the big screen, just show the working PowerPoint screen. Sometimes that can help things,
5: but um, It's been playing up for a, a little while actually. Oh, I can't see it. I can't find Zoom at all. <laughs>
4: We can see you, Lou, but still no. Yeah, spot. I can see him here.
5: Ah, right, okay, that's a start. I was going
4: to mine your
3: paper.
5: Um. Is that better? Yep. Right. We've got your husband. Now we can here. see your husband, husband. again. <laughs> How's that? A, yes, got it, yes. Right, so yeah, around 20% of alcoholics classified as functional alcoholics. So I don't know what anyone thinks of that. Um, having a quick look at Alice's journey to alcoholism, I can remember reading in the chat how people thought, wondered where this had come from. Alice has always liked to drink, but her problems probably developed quite subtly, so that unless you go back and actually take a a retrospective look, you might not notice just how um, bad she became. She was always the life and soul of a party and got into quite a few drunken escapades, such as when she thought she could fly after climbing a tree with Tracy, subsequently suffering the wrath of Emma. (laughs) Her activities are not going to notice by villagers. Jolene's had to tell Chris to take her home after she insulted Justin once. Nick ensured she didn't drive home after a particularly heavy session and Alice caused a great deal of distress at Nick's funeral. She's also reckless with alcohol and spiked Pip's drink when she was pregnant New Year's Eve 2017. Alice uses alcohol as a coping mechanism to drown our sorrows, celebrate her wins. And this was particularly the case as the job with Price Bowman started to go wrong. Alice went from an intelligent, high achieving aeronautical engineering graduate to someone who's struggling at work, passed over for promotion, her confidence and self-belief had gone. And she also lost her social capital that she'd had during lockdown, depleting even further due to the drinking, which was by that time out of control. We may have laughed at her jumping on the wine delivery man, but hearing her suffering from withdrawal whilst locked down in the bathroom weeks later was anything but funny. And it absolutely brought me to tears that episode, and I've listened to it a few times since getting this presentation organised. Rewinding a little bit to a dinner party with Fallon and Harrison before lockdown, Alison didn't drink. Alice didn't drink. The whole dinner party was excruciating. Chris was embarrassed. He wanted to know why she hadn't had a drink because it would have lightened the mood a little. She then accepted his offer of a nightcap. He basically encouraged her and enabled her to drink, even though he didn't know that she was having a problem then. But it highlights normalization and acceptability of drinking alcohol to relax things. I'm not criticizing Chris here. And then Chris later covered for Alice at work when she was too hungover and slept through a client meeting. Chris is now out of his depth and trying to deal with Alice's problem as best he can, particularly with pregnancy in the mix. So let's have a look at alcohol use in pregnancy and speak more generally about it. It's well established that alcohol consumption during pregnancy is associated with issues for the unborn child. Yet yeah, studies show that there's a high frequency of alcohol consumption by pregnant women. Let's look at the figures. Sorry, it seems to be something inverse. So I'll just move that across. 80% of women in the UK drink alcohol before pregnancy. Only 50% of pregnancies are planned and approximately 41% of women in the UK report to have drunk alcohol at some point in pregnancy, either before or after they've, they knew they'd conceived. Research by Helen Howlett used biomarkers to assess alcohol use during, during pregnancy show that there's a notable disparity between what a woman says she's drunk and what she's actually consumed. Internal decisions to drink appear to be shaped by social norms. Public policy can help, and the latest guidance is that no known amount of alcohol is safe during pregnancy. But it's taken a long time to get here due to mixed messages from various, varying quality research with different definitions, such as binge drinking. Some um, studies report binge drinking to be two to three units of alcohol. Other studies report binge drinking as over five units, and also a difference in the amount of ethanol per unit. And, you know, research has to be ethical, we can't just go and get pregnant women and start giving them alcohol to see what happens. So much of the research that we do have is actually based on self-reported measures and animal studies. Whilst public policy is useful, it can also bring about judgment, leading to stigma and shame. Pregnant women who misuse alcohol are often reluctant to seek help due to fear of negative judgment and hostile reactions. Alcohol in pregnancy then, is a poison to the developing embryo and fetus and women get judged on this. Very, very briefly, alcohol is able to cross cross the placenta and enter into the fetal circulatory system, causing anomalies through various, variously proposed mechanisms of action. The fetus will have a blood alcohol level that's similar to the mother's and this varies due to the differences in alcohol metabolism of both the mother and of the fetus. Alcohol can pass through the fetal blood brain barrier affecting brain development. Alcohol also impairs blood flow to the fetus by constricting blood vessels, inducing hypoxia and fetal malnutrition, which is why some of these babies are very small for Size age. The damage of alcohol that alcohol causes to the fetus is also gestation and um, dependent. This is a hugely complicated slide, but I just thought I'd show when different aspects of the fetus are developing. The brain develops all the way through pregnancy, and that's why exposure to alcohol at any point can cause neurodevelopmental problems. The facial characteristics that I'll be showing in a few slides only happen yeah. if alcohol is yeah. consumed when they're being those particular features are being formed. Now we know why there's concern for the fetus of a woman with alcohol use disorder. Let's look at the prenatal care that's available to Alice. The community midwife plays a pivotal role in the care for pregnant women. And this is the case for women who are having issues with alcohol consumption and drug abuse. During the booking appointment, the initial appointment for a pregnant woman, the midwife will take a detailed medical and social history and is also required to screen for alcohol misuse. This can cause anxiety for midwives and a reported 33% of qualified midwives felt that they were inadequately trained in dealing with the consequences of alcohol disclosure. And the midwives in another survey also commented on the difficulties in trying to obtain this information during the first meeting when report and trust building are key aspect, particularly for a woman who's got substance misuse. Further difficulties are encountered when the midwife suspects alcohol use, but this is being obscured by the woman. However, for a large number of women, pregnancy is a great motivator to get help. Alice disclosed their difficulties with the GP, who though I thought came across as very considerate and non-judgmental, dealing with a fear-based outburst well. He suggested that Alice attended a residential alcohol treatment service. and some of you will know that I had some issues when I attempted to get information from these places. More of that at the end if you're interested. Rehabilitation for pregnant women is seen as an urgent priority. They they take priority over everyone else. So I was disappointed that Alice and Chris had to go down the private route for the sake of access. Sadly, there's insufficient provision for women and we could easily head back into disparity through inequity. Once again, those who are potentially more in need don't get the support because they can't afford it. Alcohol detoxification guidelines for pregnancy are scant and lack robust data to guide management. It's a case of balancing the risks of medications such as benzodiazepines and the risk of damage to the fetus, but counseling is definitely a cornerstone of recovery. Alcohol withdrawal occurs with a sudden stopping of alcohol consumption and should be avoided. Um, It can range from minor restlessness to more severe episodes of increased blood pressure, racing pulse, seizures, hypothermia, hallucinations. Think back to Alice thinking that she delivered her baby and even death. Alice wasn't joking when she said she felt like she was dying. Alcohol withdrawal, especially in pregnancy, is considered a medical emergency. Treatment programs are are important for pregnant and parenting women. So this show that a year after discharge, there are still improvements in reduction of alcohol use and also in improvements in mental health. So there is hope for Alice. Back to the professionals who are more involved in pregnancy, there are pathways in place for most trusts and health boards. Women are often referred to specific alcohol misuse clinics to be seen by a consult- consultant obstetrician. And this should be done as soon as the midwife is aware of alcohol issues. Specialist midwives are also part of a team of professionals supporting the pregnant woman and these include substance abuse midwives and child protection liaison midwives. Current alcohol use is assessed as best as possible. Additional problems are also identified and this is because alcohol misuse is often not the only problem but can be just part of family problems such as domestic abuse and partner substance abuse as well woman is informed that child protection concerns will override confidentiality and social services will be informed appropriately, a pre-birth family support meeting convened and the outcome recorded in the hospital notes, with the fetus being recorded on the high risk register and recorded in the maternity notes as well if this is felt to be an appropriate action. Threat pregnancy, women like Alice should be offered more frequent, at least scheduled midwife appointments. And failure fail to attend these appointments would be flagged as a concern. Once the babies are born, most of the babies with pregnancy uh, prenatal alcohol exposure are born with no apparent problems. But Alice will need support. The postnatal period can be difficult for women under the best of circumstances, and Alice will be vulnerable to relapse at this time. And on breastfeeding, babies are exposed to alcohol through the mother's breast milk, so it's not a good idea for her to start drinking then either. I'm going to really whiz through this slide in the interest of time, but health are there to support the new mother and observe triggers that might result in relapsing. They get quite good at picking up the signs, so even when a woman says that they're coping, they generally are aware that there could be a problem and pay a little more attention to her. They'll also, liaise with social workers as per need. Social workers are particularly involved in more chaotic families and those who have issues, in addition to alcohol, as noted earlier. Some of the babies will be put into foster care straight after birth, sometimes with a blood relative, and most of the children that I've seen in clinic are actually being cared for by a family member. It's all about trying to ensure that the baby is in a safe environment and trying to get the support that the family need to do this. And then eventually, hopefully, they'll turn up with an appointment with a community pediatrician. They usually arrive in these clinics and being presented with behavioural problems and they're quite a bit old, they're usually school age, six, seven, maybe, maybe older. They um, they referred for neurodevelopment and autism assessments, or via social services from a safeguarding perspective, or they referred for pre-adoption medical screening. So all children who are going to go up for adoption come to see us um, to make sure that things are okay. For most children with behavioural problems, it will have been many years in battles from first requesting help to being seen, and therefore, they can't, there can be a juxtaposing sense of frustration and relief when they get to clinic. Whilst faecal al- alcohol syndrome and fe- fetal alcohol spectrum disorders are challenging to diagnose due to overlap with other conditions, alcohol is rarely the sole issue. Paediatricians can usually recognise when... D is likely to be a problem and care is taken, particularly with the birth family, to try to avoid stigmatising the mother and child. There's some controversy over this. Many foster and adoptive parents appreciate the label and are more likely to be vocal about the condition so that they can get their children appropriate help because these children have different needs to other children with learning and behavioural problems. And Social workers also appreciate knowing if FASD is a diagnosis that adoptive parents can be made aware of potential problems. Among other things, paediatricians will also request a genetic test known as a microarray, which allows us to have a look in quite close molecular detail at the chromosomes, see if there's any additional deleted genetic material that could give rise for a developmental or behavioural problem. so fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or FASD, is one of the most common causes of non-genetic behavioral learning and developmental problems. The physical, cognitive and behavioral issues that are observed among individuals with um, prenatal alcohol exposure are not dichotomous. they comes range along a continuum which come under the umbrella term FASD. It's not a diagnosis in itself, but includes a variety of diagnoses, including to sort of explain some of these acronyms under the umbrella, uh, partial fetal alcohol syndrome, alcohol-related neurodevelopment disorder, static encephalopathy, encephalopathy and neurodevelopmental diagnosis with prenatal alcohol exposure. And then we have fetal alcohol syndrome itself, which is at the most severe end of the spectrum. All the FASD show one thing in common though, and that's brain changes caused by alcohol exposure in utero. The brain is formed throughout pregnancy and beyond as per the earlier slide. And this means that neurodevelopment can be affected at any point in pregnancy. There are nine main domains that are shown on this slide. The key issues based upon my discussion with the paediatricians are particular problems with maths trouble with planning and organisation, having impulsive behaviour, repeating mistakes because they don't understand consequences, difficulty understanding abstract ideas. They needed to be reminded to do the kind of tasks that we could take for granted, such as having a shower each day. On the whole, though, the younger children do hit developmental milestones pretty averagely, and it's not until they're older when they're at school that they begin to have a more recognisable pattern of problems. Like I said earlier, there's an overlap with other conditions, so diagnosis of ADHD and learning disabilities and other common conditions are not surprising. And this leads to FASD being underdiagnosed. After a paediatrician seeing a case in which they are pretty sure that FASD is the di- diagnosis, they then going to refer them to the genetic service. It's not a genetic condition, so why do we get involved? Our main task is one of exclusion. We need to exclude a genetic cause for learning and behavioral issues that the children are experiencing to be sure that what's going on is is likely to be caused by prenatal alcohol exposure. Another reason for doing this is because of implications to other children. Younger siblings of a child who's affected have an increased likelihood of having the same diagnosis just due to um, the mother's lifestyle and alcohol intake. Community peds referred to the genetic service and initially the parents or guardians will have an appointment with a genetic counsellor. The, the aim here is to get background details, obstetric development, medical and family histories. As you can imagine, this is often difficult, especially if the child is fostered outside of a family and information isn't available. The child is then examined by the clinical genetics consultant. These consultants are trained in dysmorphology and can identify really subtle variations in appearance and, and just this is a picture of the key features, the look of a child that has fetal alcohol syndrome at the far end of the spectrum. Not every child with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder has these features because as we know from my earlier slide it's determined by exposure at a particular point in gestation. So key features are a small head size with underdeveloped upper parts of the ear and this gives rise to a rail track appearance. They have a smooth philtrum, sort of like four and five in this chart here and a thin upper lip, and they have epicanthal folds as well. Like I said, not every child with a condition has these features though, and some of them can be very, very subtle. I've also listed a few additional features on the right. And Really notable, and the ones that keep coming up in the conversations that I've been having are sleep problems, poor memory, poor reasoning, judgment. And the key message from what we do is that fetal alcohol syndrome is diagnosed by following the clues and through a process of exclusion. It's good to know. We all know someone like Lillian who's drunk halfway through pregnancy though and has had a perfectly healthy child. Why is this? And it's due to modifying factors. Um, so twin studies have confirmed that virtually identical prenatal alcohol exposure can lead to markedly different FASD outcomes, fetal genetics influence fetal vulnerability. The effects of teratogens can be modified by genetic differences, which means that not all fetuses exposed to alcohol, alcohol sustain damage and present with FASD. And this adds a further layer of complexity to the whole issue and one of the reasons why public health policy is difficult. And we kind of coming back full circle now to where I started. So let's go back to the beginning. Women, ashamed and stigmatized, there's a lot of stigma attached to women's drinking habits in general, but particularly due, during pregnancy. While it's accepted that women may drink alcohol before realizing that they're pregnant, it is becoming less morally acceptable for a woman to drink alcohol during pregnancy. We need to remind ourselves though, well, that it is not just the woman who should shoulder some of this responsibility, but we also need to think about the input of her partner, her family and wider society. And drinking alcohol even during pregnancy is not illegal in this country. What Alice needs is the support of all her family to help her. Everyone loves Lillian but Peggy wouldn't wish her life on Chris, as in Peggy's life with Jack. Emma is generally unimpressed with Alice so she's not going to be a good person to talk to probably. Coming clean is going to be really difficult for Alice main points are that judgment leads to shame and stigma, not only for the mother but also for the affected child. We need to consider the roles of the father, family and society as a whole when we talk about alcohol exposed pregnancy. FASD and fetal alcohol syndrome are challenging to diagnose and most likely underdiagnosed. Harm is difficult to predict due to confounding factors. And not every child exposed to alcohol in the womb will have FASD. Baby Carter, Ambridge or Birmingham. Where's he going to end? He or she going to end up? He or she is likely to be perfectly fine when they're born. And if Alice and Chris can provide a stable home for the child that, Hallie, that Alice gets the support she needs, we have hope that the counters will stay in Ambridge, at least for the time being. We can't predict how the child will or will not be affected until they start school and some of the neurodevelopmental aspects we talked about start to be displayed. So basically, it's a waiting game. But you never know. The Ambridge fairy might wave her wand and Alice's the baby might have protective genetic alleles which modify the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure and they'll all live happily ever after. And I'd just like to say thank you to everybody who's spoken to me, particularly Helen, our Helen Burrows, um Dr. Sarah Parker in North Wales, who's a community paediatrician, uh, Dr. Emily Sloper, who's a who was a paediatrician, is now a clinical geneticist. I spoke to health visitors, um, genetic counsellors and um, neonatal nurses, and they've all been really, really insightful. I have provided a couple of resources. So the first one is a charity who provides support to those who are or have been affected by their parents drinking. And it's one of the less preachy support groups, out there. some of them kind of, I wouldn't totally recommend. And then there's an Australian documentary called hidden harm, where you can see some of the effects in older and um, people who have fetal alcohol syndrome and spectrum disorder.
0: Brilliant. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Listen, we're we're running over, so could I ask that you ask Lou? She's very friendly, but we need to bring this bit to an end because and all all um comedy and aside, we need a screen break of 90 minutes before we come back, otherwise we're going to be accused of drugging all mad. So we are going to close, even though there's a million questions because, you, because it, you know you've had 15 papers today like no academic conference would sit, sit you through 15 papers and even with the yoga I'm concerned that you might kind of have achieved deep vein thrombosis so um, we are going to close we, there's a million things to discuss which we will do at the dinner as I said before we're going to have Lucy Freeman at half six for some funnies then we're going to do some prizes. And what you do is completely up to you. You can eat on the screen, you can go out, you know, it's completely up to you, but we will be here for a while, having a drink and having a chat. So if we could bring questions to that forum. Um, yes, without, without a 90 minute break, I think we're breaking some kind of livestock rules. So we'd better stop. It's been an amazing day and too much to summarize right now we've got 176 of you still in the room and we started the day with 199 <laughs> so that's amazing that's a marathon peeps so we will we will be back in exactly this position but in different clothes <laughs> in 90 minutes okay we will say so, and also what we're going to do with that session is we'll have our award ceremony then as well we'll do our dumpty thing along which you know, over Zoom, it will be another catawalling like we did before, but we're going to do it. (laughs) And also, bring your craft with you. Bring your Archers, you know, Academic Archers Conference craft with you because we've got a competition to win something, so we will ask you to show us your craft. Show us your makes. makes. And there's a a prize for you for the best make there as well. So thank you so much, everybody. I'm going to end this uh, session now. It's a separate link for this evening but we'll see you back here at 6 30.